It's not very often I get my official name, Gideon. I'm normally Joe. My mother calls me Joanna when she's telling me off and can't get any vent out of Joe. <laughs> but feel free to call me whatever you like. Anyway, so we are on uh, page 612, uh, reading Psalm 109. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent, for people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me, and I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquities of his father be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore a curse as his garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt tied forever round him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers to those who speak evil of me. But you, Sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it's your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. While they curse, may you bless. May those who attack me be put to shame, but may your servant rejoice. May my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. 
With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng of worshippers I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. Thank you, Joe and Royston, for reading that to us. I would love you to find it actually in a Bible if you're sitting near one of the Bibles. I'll explain why at some point. I've never preached on this psalm before. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on this psalm before. And we're not going to go through every verse of it tonight. I want to have a couple of windows uh, or one theme that we look at really to help unlock um, the topic which often resurfaces in the Psalms, that is the calls for judgment or imprecations, where the psalmist prays for judgment to fall on his enemies. How we meant to understand um, these imprecatory psalms, as they're sometimes called. Now, to introduce things, let me remind you of an important moment in the appearances of Jesus on the very first Easter day where, you might remember this, he appears to the disciples and eats bread and fish to persuade them that he's not a ghost. And in Luke 24, verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then it says he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So one of the things Jesus seems repeatedly to have done in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension was to show from the Old Testament that he was its true fulfillment. Wherever you break into the Old Testament, you find Jesus predicted and promised, not least his suffering. It used to be said of um, naval rope in the British Navy that wherever you cut the rope, there was a scarlet thread running through it. And the Old Testament is like that, in that the suffering of the predicted ruler or Christ is there in all sections of the Old Testament. And that was a stumbling block to many people in Jesus' day. How can it be the Christ if he suffers? But The fact that it was predicted, the prediction of the Messiah's rejection and suffering all through the Old Testament, it's there, if only people had eyes to see it. And on that first Easter day, Jesus specifically highlighted the Psalms. Now, sometimes the Psalms predict him in specific ways where a sort of detailed prediction will occur. I think an example of that in our Psalm is verse 25. If you can scan down to that, we read this. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Which is exactly what happened on Good Friday as the enemies of Jesus hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Matthew and Mark both use that little phrase there. Nobody made them do that sort of head-shaking disapproval of Jesus, tutting at him and saying... You got what you deserve, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Nobody made them do that. It was entirely unconscious. But you can bet the next time the disciples sang Psalm 109, they could not help remembering the head shaking that they'd seen on Good Friday at the cross. 
So sometimes it's very detailed and specific. You think of the, the, the gambling for Jesus' clothes and that sort of thing, predicted in a specific way. Other times it's a less explicit prediction in the Psalms of a royal figure who is righteous but rejected and then vindicated as well. Now, the headings of the Psalms, I think, make this point. I have a little campaign um, to try and get them included on the service sheet. Jo did exactly what she was asked to do and read, um, read it as printed there, but um, I'm to blame for not proofreading carefully enough that we didn't have the little heading in there, which is why I wanted you to have it open in front of you in the Bibles, in the pews, if you, if you would. I always try to make sure that when we read the Psalms in church, we don't skip the headings. Uh, normally, this is, this is why it's complicated and difficult. Nobody should feel got at if, if they've not read a psalm heading. Normally, we should leave out the NIV headings because they aren't, in fact, the text of the Bible. But the headings of the psalms are different. They are included in the manuscripts we have, which is good evidence that they are part of the sacred text. So I want us to remind ourselves of tonight's superscription. It's in, uh, there at the top in, in italics for the director of music of David, a psalm. Now that reminds you straight away that this psalm was set to music. It may not be like most of our songs in church today, but it was written to be sung. And maybe, you could say, with the music actually helping to unlock the powerful emotions that the words contain. So it's intended to be sung, and I guess logically, therefore, it's intended for congregational use, which is interesting, isn't it? It's a very intensely personal psalm, very personal song in one sense. It rises out of the psalmist's experience, but apparently it's okay for everybody to piggyback on the experience of the psalmist and to sing along with him, because I guess we will match his experience of suffering if we stand with uh, the uh, anointed king, the Christ. Now, we've got one of the most common headings in the Psalms in our psalm tonight as well, of David. I am not an expert in Hebrew, but um, the preposition there could mean of David, uh, in other words, by him, or it could mean concerning David, it's about him, or even for David. There's a sort of uh, multiple application to that little word that uh, we've got down as of. And it might mean either King David, the son of Jesse, um, the guy who grew up in Bethlehem and so on, or the Davidic king after him. In other words, this psalm fits the royal line of David. So here's the prediction of our psalm. The line of David, well it might be a royal line, but it would be rejected as David himself had been. You think of lots of incidents in David's life. Um, remember Saul throwing a spear at him, or the Philistines attacking him, or Doeg the Edomite betraying him, or that whole grim episode where his son Absalom betrays him. The king would suffer opposition and I guess he would often have a petition on his lips as a result. Lord, remember me. Remember your promises to me, so on and so forth. And I wonder, doesn't that just remind you of somebody else who came later, as soon as I talk that way? Doesn't our psalm, 
this evening remind you of the one who, according to Hebrews 5, during the days of his life on earth, offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And, says Hebrews, he was heard because of his reverent submission. So I wonder if Psalm 109 was one of the psalms which Jesus mentioned explicitly in his Easter Day Bible study. There is a good chance that he did. Um, I'll give you another bit of evidence. This is a lot of waggling on the tee before I drive off, hopefully down the fairway in due course. Just bear with me, okay? There's a good chance that Jesus did refer to Psalm 109 because we know from Luke that in the 40 days between his resurrection, Jesus gave many instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles and spoke about the kingdom of God. And then, lo and behold, shortly after his ascension, the apostle Peter quotes explicitly from tonight's psalm, Psalm 109, in a way that would be plausible if Jesus had recently taught them from this psalm himself. I think, um, seeing as we've got Bibles open, it would be good to turn to that incident. If you don't mind doing that, I would love you to see what the Apostle Peter says about this psalm with with your own eyes. It's in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 which I think is on page 1092, if you could but see that, 1092, Acts chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. This is just after the ascension. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, Acts 1.15, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. And on he goes to quote from Psalm 109. A couple of chunks down, uh, may another take his place of leadership. Psalm 109 verse 8. But notice in, the, in the, those first two verses there, 15 and 16, what Peter states about our psalm. Its human author was David. He's explicit about that. So you might be scratching your head thinking, well, is it an expression of his frailty and sinful anger then, that psalm? Is David just venting his spleen? No, look at verse 16 again. The Holy Spirit spoke through David long ago through David so he's he's clear isn't he that God was speaking I'm grateful to Gideon unscripted by me for that start of the service where we started with 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is God breathed furthermore Peter is quite clear that the psalm was fulfilled in the action of Judas betraying Jesus So in other words, it was also, obviously, predicting the one who Judas betrayed. The Holy Spirit was speaking through David about Jesus. I'm sorry slightly to labour the point, Um, and we haven't yet really looked at the psalm much, but I think that introductory stuff is important because it shows how the New Testament is not embarrassed about psalms like Psalm 109 in the way we might be tempted to be. Psalm 109 is too strong for many modern commentators. For example, C.S. Lewis. I've often quoted C.S. Lewis with approval in sermons, but he was wrong 
about psalms like this, uh, which pray down God's judgment on the enemies of God. He called them diabolical and devilish. Quote, the hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised. We should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it, or worse still, used it to justify similar passions in ourselves. Now that, it seems to me, betrays a low view of the psalm, that it isn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. By contrast, listen to how Charles Spurgeon speaks. As we read these verses, we need all our faith and reverence to accept them as the voice of inspiration. But the exercise is good for the soul, for it educates our sense of ignorance and tests our teachableness. Is it not good for us sometimes to be made to feel that we're not yet able to understand all the word and mind of God? Why should we expect to understand all things? Perhaps it's more for our benefit to exercise humility and reverently worship God over a hard text than to comprehend all mysteries. So, end of introduction, I want us to start by praying for that humility before scripture, if that's okay. Let's just pause for a moment and pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through your written word, the sword of the Spirit, tonight. And we pray you'd help us to receive your word humbly and reverently. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So much for the long introduction. I'm hoping that will set us up to move quite quickly now. The one topic I want you to notice, really just from the first four verses, is the use of words. Different characters speaking, using words in different ways. Let me read verses 1 to 4 again. This is back in the psalm, Psalm 109, verse 1. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They've spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. Different characters speaking in different ways. Let's think first about the psalmist's enemies and how they use words. There's plainly a group of people in view in verse 2. People who are wicked and deceitful and have opened their mouths against him. Their main weapon is an unrelenting, deceitful smear campaign. But it's all based on fabricated evidence. Their attack in verse 3 says, without cause, they're returning evil for good. Now that's a group of enemies, but as the psalm goes on, it's clear that there's a ringleader. So for example, verse 17, it's down to the singular. He loved to pronounce a curse. He enjoys the pleasure of giving David a good tongue lashing. And it was just second nature to that person to speak that way, as normal as getting dressed in the morning. Verse 18, he wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. So you get the, the, the picture. There's a group opposed. There's one specific ringleader. 
But I want to suggest that even behind that specific enemy, this psalm is unmasking a supernatural, satanic, arch enemy. In Hebrew, the root behind the idea of accusation, which runs through the psalm, is the root for the same word as Satan. So in verse 4, you could translate it, in return for my friendship, they Satan me. Similar in verse 25, I'm an object of scorn to my Satans. Or 29, may my Satans be clothed with disgrace. I don't think that's just a linguistic accident. David is aware that as God's king, the opposition against him has a satanic overlord in charge. He is the arch nemesis, the great accuser of the brethren, attacking and accusing him with lies and false charges. Simply because he's God's anointed, God's Christ, he draws unrelenting unrelenting opposition from the Antichrist. That was David's experience, and it's often reality for the believer. Some of us will know that in the workplace, maybe personal animosity from superiors at work, where the unrealistic um, nagging standards may or may not be directly connected to being a believer, but they're still without cause and a case of meeting good with evil. For others, maybe it's some other form of of baseless criticism, um, whatever it might be. How are we supposed to deal with it? Well, let's move on to a second use of speech in the psalm. David, whose speech is not directed against other people horizontally, but vertically to God in both praise and prayer. I wonder if you notice that in verse, verses 1 to 4. Look at his title for God in verse 1. My God, whom I praise. He had a, a big view of God, which puts all the opposition in perspective. And there's a moment towards the end of the psalm, I think where Royston took over in the reading, where he turns from his enemies to praise God again. But you, sovereign Lord. And it's at that point that the lights come on again. Uh, Note to self, what a difference it makes when trouble comes. To use my mouth for that most noble purpose, to praise God. So notice that description of God. But notice the man's description of himself in verse 4. It's just sort of uh, lobbed in quietly. In return for my friendship, they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. Oh, hang on a minute, somebody might say. Are you really going to dignify the rant that follows with the title of prayer? And I suppose that's a fair question to ask. Uh, it's certainly prayer when he prays for deliverance, like in that verse, verse 21, but you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. But what about when he prays for his enemies to be judged, or even for his enemies' family to suffer? Verse 9, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. To our ears, that sounds vindictive. Uh, Although it's worth saying the tone of the judgments he calls for is retributive, if I can use it. I don't even know if that's a real word. He's praying all the time. For a punishment that fits the crimes this man has perpetrated. That the accusations and bullyings this enemy has used will be exactly what he suffers. 
So a sort of boomerang of cruelty will come right back to the place it started out and hit him. So it's retributive. It's measured in specific types of judgment he's praying for. But here's the point. He's praying for this to happen. He's not taking action into his own hands. He's not taking action to reduce his enemy's children to beggary. He asks God to do it. Vengeance belongs to God, says the Bible. So David prays. He's a man of prayer. And that's how he is using this gift of speech, to praise God and to pray. Now, there's obviously much more to say about that. You might be thinking of uh, 25 different questions to ask afterwards. What about Jesus' command? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. True. How about praying for persecutors to become Christians? Well, that's a good point, isn't it? Remember the first Christian martyr, Stephen? There he is, praying as the rocks are sort of crashing all around him and uh, blood, no doubt, all over him. He's praying as the rocks fall. Don't hold this sin against them. And part of the answer to that prayer was that Saul, the persecutor, was converted and became Paul, the apostle. There is a sense in which we can rightly pray for the opposition to Christians to be removed by people becoming Christians. I like the story about Abraham Lincoln when he was being accused once of being too soft on his opponents. You need to destroy your enemies, not work so hard to pacify them. And Lincoln replied, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them into my friends? When we face opposition, I wonder, will we pray for people to be transformed and for enemies to become friends? as people submit to Jesus Christ. We need to pray for God's help to bring an end to the the grudges that just lie under the surface in our lives where we just quietly ignore people or hope not to meet them. And pray for God to help us to drop those grudges, to forgive those people fully, all the way down, and to begin to pray for their transformation, their repentance, their blessing. Now, where people won't bow the knee to Jesus, well, we'll wait patiently. And does this psalm give you warrant for this? Can we release them into God's hands, praying for him to take action so that we don't take action? Vengeance belongs to God, not us. So that's the voice of prayer and praise. There is one other character who's speaking in the psalm. And it's God, of course, or rather to begin with, he is not speaking. Remember verse 1, my God whom I praise, do not remain silent. He has been silent. Apparently, he's allowed the hate campaign to go on without taking action, without clearing David, without putting it all right. And that's often how it seems in our world today. We haven't found a a place to put this photo up. Um, Simon, can you bung that photo up? It was very good to have that bit of praying about open doors and the stats for um, lost it. I'll introduce it, shall I? You ask our brothers and sisters about, um, yeah, this is a picture of two scenes in in Nigeria. You probably can't even see it particularly well, but the top left image there is of a funeral. 
I gathered about an average of 14 Christians are killed every day in Nigeria. And there will be often displaced people gathering in places like this sort of shelter here in the other picture. I read about a crowd gathering for a funeral for three young men who had been killed. And while the mourners were getting ready for the funeral, gunmen came and sprayed the crowd with bullets. So children and grandparents just fled out of the village square into the bush and they were hunted down and mown down as they ran. Total 51 people were killed. But so commonplace are those sorts of attacks that actually the international media barely notice it. I just discovered it by reading something that Baroness Cox had written up for a long-running campaign she's uh, done to, to, to try and bring international persecution of Christians to politicians' attention. I think we can turn that off. I just wanted to uh, remind you of that sort of situation and to commend Evangelicals Now to you, which I think is in the porch for the month of August, which has sort of persecution updates. That sort of situation we saw in the picture there happens, doesn't it, where a murder, which is bad, brings about a funeral, and then further things happen on the back of that previous instance of persecution. You're sort of saying to yourself as you read about that, what's happened with no comment from God in that situation? He's silent, is he? We're tempted to use the, the prayer of the martyrs in, in Revelation chapter 6. How long, sovereign Lord, before you take vengeance on the shed blood of your martyrs? So, silent at the start... And that rings true to some of the situation we see in the world today. But look onto the last two verses of the psalm. This is verses 30 and 31. We are in the home straight. I've lost track of time, as you can tell. Verse 30. With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord. He's using his mouth for the right purpose of praise and prayer. In the great throng of worshippers I will praise him. Verse 31. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. That position at the right hand of the needy is the law court's position of the defense advocate in the psalmist language. God is going to speak out against all the accusations. That reminds me of Jesus. One of the things I love about Jesus in the Gospels, you read stories of how he springs up to defend his disciples. Think of the time when the Pharisees were moaning about the disciples. How come your disciples aren't fasting Jesus? Straight away, Jesus springs up to defend them. Why would they fast when the bridegroom was with them? Or when he was anointed with expensive perfume in the last week of his life and people criticized the woman who'd done it. What a waste. Think how much money could have been raised for the poor. Up springs Jesus to defend her. Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. I love that about Jesus. The way he won't hold silence when his people are opposed. He used his mouth to defend people in his lifetime. And he will do so again. So remember that comfortable word at communion that we sometimes say. We have an advocate in heaven. Jesus Christ the righteous one. And he's the propitiation for our sins. So when you feel the need for a defense, remember that Jesus Christ is your advocate. 
And of course, he's one who knows human suffering from the inside. He endured not just physical pain, though that was grim from his enemies. He endured the emotional pain uh, from his friends abandoning him. And of course, spiritual pain as he bore judgment, not for his own sin, there wasn't any, but for ours. And I want to encourage you to hold on to that as we come to communion. There's a story I heard about one of the periodic efforts in the former Soviet Union to wipe out religious belief. The Communist Party sent KGB agents to the nation's churches one Sunday. I wonder what you, what you do if um, you were in that situation. They walked into your church service. Would the fear of suffering that might follow cause you to fold in your faith? What could possibly hold you up under that sort of pressure? Well, on that occasion in the Soviet Union, one of the party agents was struck by the deep devotion of an older woman who was kissing the feet of a life-size carving of Christ on the cross. And he asked her, Babushka, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved General Secretary of our great Communist Party? Why, of course, she shot back. But only if you crucify him first. Given Jesus' loyalty to us, I want to encourage you to take heart from that. You have an advocate that's done all that for you. As we come to communion today, remember the way he springs up in our defense on the basis of his shed blood for us. Let's pause for a moment uh, before we sing our next song and just pledge our loyalty to him uh, with, with his help in the days and years to come.